I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Drive Nation podcast, now on episode five. Uh, we're still doing this over Skype from our homes and still concentrating on standalone special episodes. I'm Dan Prosser, uh, joined once again by my co-founder and co-host, Andrew Frankel. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Dan. How are you? How are you surviving all this nonsense? Surviving, quite happy, really, but it's just a bit tedious now, isn't it? And worrying as well, I suppose, from a, a sort of professional point of view for all of us. Yeah, no, and I mean, I think I think it's one of those things, I think, like so many people, um, it's just the quantifying the problem, isn't it? Uh, if you knew how long it was going to last, you could plan. But anyway, um, you, like me, are in an awful lot better position than lots of people, so we should probably stop whinging and get on with our podcast. Exactly right. So for this one, we're talking all about Aston Martin. Um, I've, I've subtitled this, The Highs and the Lows. The many highs and the many lows. Exactly. Um, and... The company was founded in 1913, which meant in 2013, it celebrated its 100th year, its centenary. Um, so we're now in its 108th year. Um, Andrew, off the top of your head, in how many of those years has Aston Martin turned a profit? Oh, blimey. You keep on throwing these curveballs at me. And, <laughs> and I suspect that everybody out there thinks that these are carefully you know, uh, rehearsed uh, bits that we do. Uh, we really don't. I, I, have, I never know what question Dan's going to ask me first. Um, how many of that? Some, but really very <laughs> few. Um, hopefully some of the more recent ones. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, there was a long period where they didn't even know how much it cost them to make a car and didn't realise that the cost they were selling them for was rather less than the cost they were making them for. I don't think they ever made any profit pre-war. I mean, I think probably in the late 50s and early 60s, DB4s, db five, James Bond, all that, they probably made a bit. Um, and I think in the Ford era they did. And, and obviously recently until the fairly calamitous 2019 that they had, um, I think the numbers were pointing in the right direction. So, I mean, definitely not never, but rather more rarely than, uh, than would be described as being optimal for the car industry or indeed any other industry. It's funny, isn't it? Here's a company that's well into its 11th decade um, and it's, it's turned a profit in a handful of years throughout that time. We won't put a number on it, but it's, it's not a huge amount. And yet it's still there. Um, it's still got an incredible reputation around the world. The brand is enormously strong. Um, and yet it, it's, it's proved so difficult over the years to turn it into a sustainable business. Um, I'm no, I don't believe in curses or witchcraft or any of that stuff. But Aston's performance over the years, it kind of makes you wonder, is there something cursed about this brand? Well, I mean, you can look at it the other way, can't you? you know, however difficult it has been for Aston Martin to make a profit, um, it's been even more difficult for someone to kill it because despite all that's gone on, and who knows how many times it's gone bust over the years. I mean, it <laughs> first went bust in 1925. And, you know, and it's been going bust uh, with reasonable regularity. I'm not going to say ever since because it, it hasn't in the very modern era because it's had some fairly big patrons behind it. But, 
you know, nevertheless, here we are. And so many other brands have come and they've gone and have suffered, you know, you would think, you know, less trouble than Aston Martin and not survive it. And this, this is what, to me, brings me back to the power of the brand. It is such a name, isn't it? Um, you know, mm. and the thing is that because it is that name, because it is, uh, I don't want to use the word, but it, it, it has a certain sort of iconic status that someone will always want to rescue it. Someone yeah. will always want to be the person who digs at Aston Martin out of whatever hole it's just dug for itself again. Uh, and, you know, and to mix my metaphors furiously, you know, allows it to set sail for some new bright horizon. Mm. Um, and, and long may that continue. It was probably only 12, 18 months ago that I was quite gladly talking about Aston Martin as being perhaps the most uh, exciting luxury car brand on the planet just because of everything that it had going on it was bringing the valkyrie to market so aston martin was having its own mclaren f1 moment and that car is actually just around the corner um and then just just beyond that car there's a new range of mid-engine hypercars and supercars the front engine cars the dbs superleggera the db11 and the vantage really really good cars um and then there was the DBX, which we all thought was going to prop the company up for a long time to come. Perhaps it will. There was racing activity. Uh, the Valkyrie was going to race at Le Mans. Uh, there were lots of incredible continuation cars, things like the DB4 GT Zagato. The brand had all this incredible stuff going on around it. And it just looked like the, the company was unrecognisable from the one that it had been only a few years previously. It was the sunlit uplands. And yet in the past few months, the past couple of years, the, the mood has kind of changed. I mean, the stock price has, it's really crashed. Uh, I haven't checked what it is recently, but it's, it's slipped so far from that IPO. Well, the IPO was, sorry, the IPO was at £19. And the last time I looked, it was, it was less than one. It was about 85p a share. Now, I mean, obviously, a lot of that's got to do with, um, you know, global issues, which far outstrip any of, course, of Aston Martin's of problems. But yeah. So there are some very serious financial issues going on. And it's just been saved once again by uh, a, a very wealthy backer in Lawrence Stroll and his his investors. Um, so where April 2020, what state is Aston Martin in? I mean, I thought it was it was just going to be sunshine and lollipops from here on, but it doesn't look that way. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think perhaps it might be instructive just to have a look at, at how it got into that state. Um, and, you know, I don't know anything, but, you know, I think like all of us, we have opinions and we have ideas. Um, and I think that, I think a lot of it, uh, not all of it, but a lot of it is genuine bad luck. I think obviously... The uncertainty over Brexit, um, the state of the pound, um, the collapse of demand for those sorts of cars in China, you know, all hit Aston Martin very hard. Um, And if that had been, you know, a Bentley or a Rolls-Royce, you know, they could look to their, you know, massive global conglomerate owners, you know, BMW or Volkswagen. um, And, you know, when you're sheltering under a shield like that, um, you know, it makes weathering those sorts of problems, you know, massively easier. Now, Aston Martin, I mean, admirably, I guess, has always tried to be um, an independent or certainly has in recent years since it was sold by Ford. Um, But clearly that comes with with associated risks. I think the other thing is, I think the I think the business plan in terms of the models was was actually looking pretty good. And I think there's an awful lot of exciting stuff. But as we have seen in the history of Aston Martin, um, its ambitions tend to outstrip its resources. And, you know, and in the past, we have seen Aston Martin trying to do too much with too little. Um, And it's fine so long as everything goes according to plan. But the problem is when things completely beyond your control turn against you you haven't got that strength in depth you haven't got those foundations you haven't got that comforting arm around your shoulder um, of your Volkswagen Um, and you know things can turn quite bad quite quickly and we've seen it before and I I think that's what we're looking at now Um, so you know going forward um, you know I think the I think there there are things that I worry about Um, you know there's the fact that there is no hybrid for some years to come in the dbx when i think quite clearly that is going to be the sort of powertrain that people are going to want um is a concern um but fundamentally i think the 
the strategy of you know really cutting production down making it a proper exclusive brand again not chasing the volume maintaining the residuals uh, and making you know really focusing on small numbers of very very special cars has to be the right way forward for it and, and, I, and i'm glad that that is uh, certainly appears to be what they can try to do yeah okay so um that's the that's the future let's look backwards andrew and can you I know all this stuff is rattling around in your mind anyway. I just need to ring it out. Can you give us? Can you give us a bit of a a breakdown of uh, the ownership of Aston Martin? Uh, maybe some of the highlights from over the years. Yeah, no, no chance at all. I mean, you know, I mean, you could write a book on it. In fact, I did. I, I did write a book about Aston Martin a couple of years ago. A massive thing. Um, in which I went into all of this, um, and because I've needed the space in my brain for so much other stuff since then, an awful lot of it's gone out again. But I mean, yes, so it was started by Lionel Martin and Robert Bamford in 1913. Bamford left almost immediately. Martin hung around until 1925, until it went bust for the first time, by which stage I don't think they produced 60 cars in the first 12 years of production. Now, okay, yeah, I think all the Great War got in the way, but even so, that's not an awful lot of output. So you might not be too surprised that it it went bust after that. Um, then until the war or close to it um, it was down to a bloke called Augustus Bertelli known as Bert um, who um, was an Italian but uh, he came to Wales as a kid so he's a bloke with an Italian name who spoke with a Welsh Welsh accent um, and was known as Bert to everyone and he was the bloke who kind of put Aston Martin on the map he was the bloke who came up with all those great pre-war cars like the International and the Ulsters and the Mark IIs and so on Um, then a bloke called Sir Arthur Sutherland had it, um, and you know he was took it up to the war, and then immediately thereafter. But he realised that he wouldn't be able to finance it the way it needed to be financed, um, and sold it to David Brown. Um, David Brown uh, realised that they had a really good chassis and a car that they made a prototype called the Atom, but they didn't have an engine for it. So he bought Lagonda, where W. O. Bentley had designed a rather nice 2.6-litre twin-cam straight-six motor, and he stuck one in the other and came up with a thing called the DB2. DB2 prototype form came out in 1949, went on sale, I think, 1950. And that, I guess, is the start point. That's the, you know, that's the starting pistol for all of Aston Martin. And then you sort of wander through the 1950s, which was... Yeah, it was a lot about DB2s, but it was also an awful lot about motor racing. You know, they had a 10-year campaign under John Wire to try and win Le Mans, and they did it absolutely at the last gasp in 1959 um, and won the World Sports Car Championship that year as well. Uh, that was also the year in which they moved from Felton to Newport Pagnell and produced the DB4. Um, and then after that, I think we kind of know, don't we? You know, DB456, uh, DBS, V8 engines, uh, and then it all went really fairly grim in the 1970s, you know, for lots of businesses, not just Aston Martin. And then it was really just a case of survival. Um, went into the era of Pace Petroleum, uh, Peter Levanos, Victor Gauntlet being the chairman. Um, he once told me that he went to work on two separate occasions expecting to shut the factory gates for good um, before the end of the day. Um, he also told me a wonderful story about how Saddam Hussein saved Aston Martin. So, um, yeah, so when Aston Martin was absolutely at its lowest ebb, um, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait um, and um, rather conveniently burned the entire fleet of Aston Martin Lagondas that the Kuwaiti royal family had. Um, and it was, once he'd been kicked out, it was the order to replace those cars which for those few, whatever it was, days, weeks, months, kept Aston Martin afloat. Um, so Victor was always quite grateful to Dan for, if nothing else, for, for doing that. Um, but Victor realised, um, like, you know, like others before him, that, you know, Aston Martin's future needed to be in the hands of a, you know, of a large organisation. Um, and he was the person who did the deal with Ford. Um, he didn't conceived the db7 which was the car that has been you know regarded as the savior of aston martin although he had had the idea for what he described as a new db4 but then ford came in um db7 came along um you know back then you know ford weren't at all sure about aston martin um there were ford executives in america who actually thought that the company was called austin martin they knew so little about it (laughs) um and you know the db7 was their one roll of the dice had that not worked um that would have been the end of it you know ford would have absolutely shut it but the db7 as we know did work 
it made Ford invest, invest big time, uh, built the Gaiden factory, DB9, early bets, modern era, off you go. Wow, uh, that was just off the top of your head, was it? <laughs> I know you you weren't reading from anything there. No, uh, sad, isn't it? That was <laughs> that was quite a, quite a performance. Um, okay, uh, and I, I remember you writing a piece for Drive Nation. If you haven't seen it, everyone, that's at Drive Nation underscore on Instagram. It's a digital car magazine that lives just on Instagram. Please have a look. Andrew, you wrote a piece about Aston Martin. Uh, it, it was basically about the hilarious names of its um, occupiers over the years. Can you give us five of the best? Oh, dear. Um, yeah, probably can't anymore. Um, Lady Dorothea Charnwood was one. There was a bloke called Lance Prideaux Brune. Um, yeah, I mean, Bert Bertelli probably isn't that funny. Um, there was a count, was there? Oh, Count Louis Zabrowski. Yeah, absolutely. He was mad. Um, he was the <laughs> bloke who came up with the original um, Chitty Chitty Bang Bangs, although they were known as Chitty Bang Bangs back then. Um, but he would produce the aero engine racing cars. In fact, I think he might have been killed in one. But you know, he was the bloke who made the cars, uh, which inspired the film. Um, and, you know, and the rest of that is history. So, yeah. So, yeah, a few of them. A few strange people. Um, but, you know, so many people, none of whom really made any money out of it, just went leaping to Aston Martin's rescue because it just kind of felt like the right thing to do. I don't think that any of these people... I think it's almost like it's almost like a sort of bloodhound um, and Ian Warhurst coming in. He just, you know, whether you know, it made him money, which I'm, I'm sure it won't, you know, he just saw a, a greater good, a nobler cause, and just felt that, you know, while he could save it, then he should. And I think so many people have felt that about Aston Martin. Um, and you know, and, and that explains how it's managed to endure through thick and thin, you know, all these years. In the last couple of years, and certainly over the, the years to come, um, our preconception of what an Aston Martin is um, has been challenged, and it will be challenged even more. But if we go back, say a decade, I think we all had a very a much clearer idea of what it was that made an Aston Martin an Aston Martin. Um, so can we pretend we're recording this in 2010 and I've asked you that question? What, what are the core attributes? Well, I mean, they, 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 they sort of said it themselves, didn't they? I mean, I, I know this is an early Betts era um, quote, and I know that everybody is not Uli's greatest fan, but power, beauty, soul, that was the sort of, those were the catchwords, weren't they? That's, the, that's actually what used to you know, flash up on your dashboard when you stuck your key in and pressed the button and fired like your Aston Martin. Um, what is an Aston Martin? Aston Martin is a driver's GT. It is a grand touring car, but not like, I mean, there's a balance, isn't there? I mean, you can describe a Bentley Continental GT as a grand touring car, but that's a car I would say where the element is, where the emphasis, sorry, is very much on the, on the, the touring side of it. Um, yeah. And the luxury and the refinement and the comfort, whereas an Aston Martin is, is on the other side of that equation. It's a driver's car. You know, it's you know, it's good enough to get you where you want to go. It's a great car to do a distance in, but when you get there, it's got to deliver. Um, and yeah, um, that to me has always been what an Aston Martin should be. That's why I've always loved the Aston Martins from the 1950s. People don't really talk about 50s Aston Martins, you know, the DB2s and that sort of thing, but they really were. I really can't say this um, these days, but I mean it in its historical contents. They were gentlemen's sports cars. Um, they were beautifully um, crafted, hand-built cars, um, but they were very sporting in nature, um, and they had a character um, which was so important, was so important to the development of how we think of the of the company today um and you know cars like the db4 5 and 6 are, are, are the sort of legendary cars uh, the newport panel cars of the 1960s and they're the cars which became much more the sort of traditional grand tourers but for me for all they added i think they also lost a little bit because they weren't to be honest with you they weren't great driving machines um and i think to be honest with you i think aston martin has produced many more great driving machines in recent years than they back than they did back there in in the years in which they made their name okay so that gives gives some idea of what an aston martin was like what it was all about for the first sort of century or so um but in the last couple of years and in years to come an aston martin can be a mid-engine hypercar. It, it can soon be a mid-engine supercar. Um, it can be an SUV. Uh, it's, we're starting to see 
all these different sort of interpretations of what an Aston Martin might be. Um, do you think those attributes, those old Aston Martin attributes, can just be transposed onto a more focused sort of mid-engine car? Or are, are Aston Martin really going to have to get us to think about what its product should be in a different way? I mean, I think the, the example to look at here is Porsche, isn't it? Um, you know, Porsche, for whatever it was, the first 50 years of its life, made nothing but, you know, two-door lightweight coupes. And then suddenly out of nowhere, it produces this thing called a Cayenne. And, you know, we all threw up our arms in horror, I certainly did, um, and said this is the end of the world and everything else. But, of course, <laughs> what, what I failed to appreciate um, at the time was the way that cars that had nothing whatever to do with Porsche's, her- Porsche's heritage um, were able to preserve it in the future. Um, because, you know, and I've said this before, you know, it is cars like the 911 which made people buy Cayennes and it is cars like the Cayenne which provided the profits to allow Porsche to continue to develop the 911 and create making you know, and continue to make the really nutty stuff that we still love today and I, and, I, and I think that's got to be the strategy with Aston Martin I mean the DBX is you know Aston Martin say oh you know they built a prototype SUV back in in the 50s and you know, 60s I'm not, sure, I'm not sure they did but you know the DBX you know there is no proper SUV heritage within Aston Martin, but it worked for Porsche. Um, and, you know, and, and my view is, um, you know, I'm quite, what's the word, cavalier about it. Um, you know, if the DBX is a raging success, and I understand they're sold out at least until the end of this year, and that provides profits, which then allows them to do great driving cars, then, you know, I don't have a problem with that. And I also don't have a problem with the mid-engine thing. You know, I don't think a mid-engine car has to be, you know, rough and ready and raw. Um, you know, it could be I'm not putting up this up as a particular example of excellence, particularly not today, but an Audi R8 is a, you know, is a long-distance touring mid-engine car, and I don't see why Aston Martin can't put their own spin on that sort of thing and, and be true to its values. Um, I mean, I guess what will be interesting is what happens long-term to the, you know, the traditional front-engine, yeah. um, big-engine coupes, you know, the, the DB11 and the DBS. Is there going to be a place for those sorts of cars in Aston Martin's future? You'd say that there should be because Aston Martin has never not made a car like that. Um, but then you've got to look at the market. If they go over to a mid-engine platform, are they also going to have a front-engine platform? Um, and um, obviously the SUV platform, you know, for such a tiny company, is that a sensible strategy? It's, you know, if you look at McLaren, they have one platform and they produce everything off it. And they've been criticised for that too, and probably rightly so. So where is the sort of happy middle ground for a company, you know, producing you know, a few thousand cars a year. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how they, how they play that. Do you have a sense of why Aston Martin is going down the mid-engine route? Is it? Yeah, I, I, I have a very good sense of why that is. Where the money is, uh, it's as simple yeah. as that. Um, you know, if you look at McLaren, Ferrari, Lamborghini, if you look at the, you know, these ultra-high luxury sector, um, you know, there are a very, very small number of, you know, ultra... Um, luxurious cars and i'm really talking rolls royces now particularly as bentley don't make a more sound anymore uh, and then you've got mid-engine sports cars um you know there really isn't you know anything else um which will sell in the numbers that you require to make the money that you need to to keep a business like that alive um and you know you, you can say well it's a purest thing and, and and that's just the best engineering solution for that kind of car and it probably is but you know i also i'm certain that you know if it wasn't where the money was aston martin wouldn't be doing it okay so th- we're talking about that's why aston martin is pursuing the mid-engine thing because that's where the 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 profit is to be made um and these cars know- sorry, sorry to interrupt you i mean these cars um you know, if you look at the three mid-engine things that Aston Martin has done or are doing, um, there's obviously Valkyrie, then there's Valhalla. But, you know, going on at the same time as Formula One, um, that's all part of the same strategy. It's all because you can't just go steaming in and go, here's a, you know, here's a 488 720S rival, um, you know, enjoy. You've got to establish some credentials in the field to begin with, um, which is why Aston Martin has gone for these very, very, you know, exclusive high price, um, you know, hypercars um, as a way of, you know, paving the way for um, for the Vanquish, which will be the mainstream mid-engine car whenever it comes in. What are we looking at? 2022 for that, I think? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, so 
we've got these mid-engine cars on the way. Um, nobody outside the company or affiliated with the company has driven the Valkyrie yet, but we're willing to bet it's a fairly stunning machine. Um, and I mean, I'm sure we're all hoping as well that the Valhalla and eventually the new Vanquish are incredible cars as well. Um, but Andrew, looking back, what have been the standout Aston Martin models from over the years? I mean, there are plenty to choose from. Yeah, um, hopefully we'll talk about Valk in a minute because I think it's an important car, not just to Aston Martin, but to cars in general. But going back, um, I mean, the, you know, the important ones I think are quite obvious. There's, you know, the DB2, which was, you know, the car that set the ball rolling. Um, there was DB4, which, you know, you might say is the car that really, you know, when people think of an Aston Martin, okay, they probably think of a DB5, but, you know, that was started two years earlier by the DB4. Then there was the, then there was the DB7, which, you know, which, which saved the company. Um, those are the cars which are the most important Aston Martins. Um, if, however, you were to ask me which were the best Aston Martins, which were the cars that, you know, the Aston Martins that I've most enjoyed driving, it wouldn't be any of them. Um, it would be a DB24 Mark III from the 1950s, or it would be a V12S Vantage from you know a couple of years back. Um, and it's those sort of slightly more niche um, cars, which are kind of ultimate derivatives of things they've been making for quite a long time when they've really, really got their stuff together and, and, and have got to that stage where the mainstream models have, have kind of been done and they just want some really special stuff. Um, those are the Aston Martins, which um, you know I remember most. You haven't even mentioned the Oscar India. The Oscar, the October introduction. Well, yeah, I, mean, I should have done actually. I should have done. I mean, not <laughs> just the not not just the the Oscar India, but I mean that. Well, if people don't know what an Oscar India is, and goodness knows I didn't until not that long ago. Uh, these are the V8 Vantages that were produced from I think it was October 1978. Someone will call in and tell me I'm wrong, but. Um, they weren't the very first of the V8 Vantages, but they were the ones which were improved. They'd sorted out the production a bit, and they're regarded as being the sort of the optimal versions of those cars. And yeah, and they are they are incredibly cool cars. Um, you know, I can remember as a kid reading tests of those cars, and, and just the fact that people would get a you know a Lamborghini Countach and a, a Ferrari Boxer and a Porsche 911 Turbo and put an Aston Martin V8 Vantage in, and I was just so proud that the car was even in there. Um, and yeah, they are they're, they're, they're magnificent thing. But again, you know, not the you know not the start of anything, the end of something. I mean, that was the end of the V8 era. Um, and you know, until you start getting into you know terrible things like virages. Um, <laughs> so again, you know, it, it it is another car that follows that theme um, of being at the end of a development cycle uh, or towards the end of a development cycle rather than at the beginning of it. And so, in the last couple of years, the company which had it could have carried on building. Uh, the front-engine GT cars that it was very good at building, that it had been learning how to craft for several decades, but it's really been stretching itself over the last couple of years um, with this this Valkyrie project in partnership with Red Bull Racing. Um, it's a stunning machine, partly to look at, but also the numbers um, and the technology involved. Um, it, it feels, it really does feel like it's a game changer for the hypercar sector. Um, how significant is it? Uh, well, I guess we have to wait to, to see until we, um, or someone gets to drive it. Hopefully me, but who can see, you can tell. Um, but, you know, all the, you know, I'm old enough to remember being at this stage before the McLaren F1 came out. Um, and, you know, all the indications then, as are all the indications now, is that that was and this is going to be, as you say, a game changing car. Now, you know, you might say oh, it's impossibly expensive. Uh, you know, only making a handful of them. It's an irrelevance. It doesn't matter. Um, and to almost everybody, almost everywhere, I guess that's true. But to those of us who love cars, love the industry, love the technology, you know, love progress, it's just, even if it's academically fascinating, it doesn't make it any less fascinating for that. And I think that cars, anything really, which does stuff that's never been done before, and I don't think there's any doubt at all that the Valkyrie will do stuff that nothing, which has ever been entitled to wear a number plate, has done before. It will do those things. Um, so yeah, I think it will be in terms of how we perceive what is capable, what a car is capable of within the road car arena, I think it will be something completely different. I think it will be, you know, the same step that the McLaren F1 made. And, you know, and the fact that, you know, Gordon Murray was behind that car and Adrian Newey is behind this car, you know, that is not a coincidence. You know, you're talking about the finest Formula One car designers of their eras, 
you know, applying their, you know, their Brighton-sized brains to the business of creating a hypercar. Um, and, and that's what you get. It seems like it's going to be a sensational car. I, I just hope one day I get to drive one. It's a long shot, but, well, you never know, do you? Um, perhaps that will turn out to be the most memorable Aston Martin drive I've ever had. But for now, it's a very different kind of Aston Martin. Um, Andrew, I'm going to ask you it's what a, your... It's a Signic, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it's not a, a Toyota IQ. No, it's um, <laughs> the Vantage N430. I want your answer to this question soon, Andrew, but I'm going to tell you mine first. Um, the, it was a strange car, the, the Vantage N430, because this was... In Aston Martin's wilderness years, really, if you talk to the guys there now, they'll tell you that they remember going to Geneva and unveiling what was essentially a sticker set for the the V8 Vantage. That was all they had to show. Um, and it, the car was several, year, several years old at that point. Uh, they'd done a little bit of fine-tuning here and there. They'd apparently squeezed a tiny bit more power out of it so that they could call it N430. Um, but actually, it turned out to be a really stunning car. Um, I remember being in the Scottish Borders on an Evo magazine photo shoot, uh, and I'd been driving this Aston Martin. And it's it's a recalcitrant, kind of tricky car at low speeds. The fly-off handbrake is a pain. Uh, the clutch pedal is heavy. The steering feels heavy. It's a, a sort of obstructive thing to drive just at low speed. But then you pick up the speed a little bit on an open, flowing B road, and it all just comes together. I think in the past I've described speed for the, the Vantage N430 as being like a conductor for the orchestra. It, it all just comes together, and it suddenly starts to make sense. And I remember driving along this Scottish Borders road and just getting into a flow with this car in a way that I haven't done with many cars before or since. And driving it in such a way that I could feel through every corner I was using just about all the front end grip and then the car was settling on the rear on the way through um the body was just rolling a little bit into the corner uh I was in tune with the gearbox and the engine and just flowing with this car um and it was one of those sort of outer body experiences where you get out and you actually don't remember consciously doing anything and you just think how the hell have I ended up here um and that, even now, when I sit back and think about my best ever drive in an Aston Martin, it's that N430. Um, Andrew, you're going to tell me now that you think it's a terrible car and I've got no taste whatsoever. No, I'm not. I'm going to tell you quite the reverse, actually. I think the N430, and I think all those, um, all that generation of Vantage was, were really, really good cars. So much so that I'd be, I think if we keep it within the road car arena... Um, you know, I'd I go for a very similar car. Um, the original V12 Vantage. Um, I can remember doing a job for Autocar where we decided to visit as many places of significance to the British motor industry in the UK as we could within whatever it was, 24, 48 hours. Can't remember. It was a while back. Um, and we were. It was all a bit frustrating and a bit disappointing because you know these places didn't tend to locate themselves at the end of particularly good driving roads they were factories and they were test tracks and that sort of thing and we were just you know running around the countryside looking at these places and we ended up in north wales i think maybe uh, at the beach where morris wilkes first sketched out the original drawing for the land rover in 1947 or whenever it was uh, but anyway what i do know is that we had to be at pendine sands um at dawn the following morning in south wales in south wales so i was at completely the wrong end of the country um and so i i can't even remember which photographer it was i'm sorry so if they're listening to this i apologize but whoever it was was a very good sleeper because we got up hours before dawn and i got in this car and drove it the length of wales um and he slept or certainly pretended to sleep or was maybe just trying to sleep through the whole thing and it was just it was just one nothing particularly dramatic happened i wasn't driving like an idiot but it was one of the, it was what you were talking about it was just one of those occasions where you felt that you could you know, for once, use the performance of a car like that. 
And because they got everything so, the way those cars steered, the way they sounded, um, the, the, the pedal weights, all the control weights, in fact, yeah. all seemed to be related to each other. It was never, you know, it, it was never the fastest car on the straight line or the grippiest car through the corner. It would never, you know, have the best brakes or whatever. But taken as a whole, on the public road where those things just don't really matter very much. I can remember just sitting there and thinking, I'm completely knackered. I've got a full day shoot ahead of me. It's the middle of the bloody night. I should be fast asleep and I couldn't be happier. I was just having a ball. And that, I guess, to me, is what an Aston Martin should make its owner or driver feel at all times. And it was, yeah, it's, it's, it's just one of those drives that has, you know, I've done thousands of those sorts of drives over my life, but it's just one that has really, really stuck with me because it was one of those drives where the car just, it just didn't get a damn thing wrong. It was fantastic. Yeah, V12 Vantage. So the the first one from just over a decade ago, wasn't it? Uh, I I remember that car very fondly. I was new to the game back then. Um, and I remember driving out to the N24, the Nürburgring, in, I guess that was May 2009, to collect um, this V12 Vantage and driving it back to the UK and just thinking it was a stunning machine i adored it and that engine in particular was sensational um and i I have to tell you this story just because it still makes me laugh um i was working for a a magazine at that time um and it was towards the end of the year i guess it was probably september or october we did one of those end of year uh you know group test car of the year things in north wales and i remember watching one of the other guys doing a cornering shot in the V12 Vantage um, around, it was actually through a junction, it was a, a slidey shot, um, through a junction rather than a, a tight corner. And I remember it rotating through the corner and then it just sort of carried on rotating. Then it rotated a bit more until it was broadside coming in my direction. I was in a safe spot, thankfully, and it didn't straighten up again. I just remember watching it nose quite heavily into this drainage ditch so it was at this bizarre angle with the, its rear end poking right up in the air um, the driver a little bit shell-shocked when he got out um, and we had to drag it out using one of the other cars a Jaguar XFR it was actually and when we towed it out we could see there was damage but it was it, it was superficial damage um, I remember the the front splitter in carbon fiber was deformed and twisted and cracked and so clearly a a fair amount of damage financially had been done but the car was drivable um so we we called aston martin someone had to put in that very awkward phone call to the press office sorry i've crashed your car don't know what you mean never made one (laughs) no well i'm not sure i believe you there um and but we explained that it was still drivable um and we still had a couple of things to do with it so they said okay fine don't worry about the car um, it's all that matters is that you're okay. Carry on doing what you need to do, and we'll come and collect the car in a few days. Later on that evening, somebody else driving over uh, a, a single track road in North Wales over Moorland uh, went over a humpback bridge a bit too fast, and the Aston ended up 50 meters off the road, uh, so far away that it needed a farmer with a tractor to come and drag it back onto the road. Um, And so that was the twice-crashed Aston Martin V12 Vantage. I think in the end, the second accident actually didn't do any more damage. So we pretended to Aston Martin that it was only the one incident. Um, so, So to be clear, you lot crashed the same car on the same day twice. Twice. Uh, do you know? I think I think that's I think that's quite special, even by <laughs> the legendary levels of incompetence of the Autocar Road Test team back in the day when I was running it. I think I think I don't think we ever managed to do that. Yeah, I'm not mentioning any names because I think I think someone might be a bit embarrassed about that story. But it was, it, yeah. I mean, it was like these things always are terrible at the time, but they very quickly become quite funny, don't they? We did we did once crash three cars on the same corner at the same time. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, yes. Remind me at the start of the podcast to tell you the story of Black Monday. Um, <laughs> yes, it was that was another. But I've never done the same car twice. Okay. Well, yeah, hopefully, hopefully that was a one-off. Um, so we, we, I think we both agree that the V12 Vantage, crashed or not, is one of the best Aston Martins ever. Let's flip it on its head, though, Andrew. Um, and you'll have a much better sense of this than I will. Uh, the worst one ever. <laughs> 
Uh, well, it's so tempting to say Signet, isn't it? Um, <laughs> uh, Signet, they're actually quite expensive now. I couldn't believe it. I, I just, you know how it is, particularly during lockdown. You're so bored. You just find yourself surfing through the classifieds or anything. And I found a Signet for sale for like 30 grand or something. I mean, it was just completely nuts. Um, I'm not going to say Signet because it's not an Aston Martin and there's nothing that anyone can say which will convince me that it is. Um, <laughs> oh, the worst one. There was one that I drove which... It was so bad. I mean, usually I'm pretty good at being objective about things and you know, maybe being a bit disappointed, but this car was so bad, it actually really annoyed me. It, it almost made me angry it was so bad, which was the automatic Virage Volante. Now, you, <laughs> you, were, no, you were born, but you were barely born when the Virage came out. Um, and this was a car... they claimed it to be a new new car it clearly wasn't um it was a development of the vantage you know and underneath you know they're under and the virage carried on in various forms you know the v600 lemore into the 21st century and underneath it um you know still lay the super legera technology that they pioneered the db4 in 1959 so this was technology which was decades old and they did the Virage um, on a budget of, I believe, £30 million pounds for, for what they claimed to be an entirely new car. It had quite a good engine. Reeves Calloway in the US had put some 32-valve heads on the, on the old V8. But the car itself was just hopeless. And then they went and chopped its roof off. And then they went and gave it a, a terrible automatic gearbox. And so what you had was a convertible Aston Martin, which didn't look particularly good. It sounded okay, but it, it was so slow it could barely get out of its own way. It was so badly built. And I can remember driving this thing away from the autocar office, um, you know, being increasingly sad about the entire thing, um, and eventually getting to where it was, where I met somebody else. And I just gave them the keys and said, just you're driving this now. And it, I think it's probably the only time, signal aside, that I've actually not wanted to drive an Aston Martin. How sad is that? <laughs> wow. Well, okay, but that's that's fair enough. There aren't too many of those um, incidents from a hundred. Where are we? Hundred and seven years or something? No, and, and that's the thing. So I'm sorry to butt in, but do you know what? If I look back, there've been okay. There probably haven't been that many Aston Martins. Which hand on my heart, I can say, yeah. There's nothing. There's no Ferrari. There's no Porsche. There's no Bentley. There's no nothing which is better than that. But Aston Martins, they've always been really pretty good cars. Um, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, I guess that they were cars which relied a bit too much on the name and the heritage and, you know, their sort of old-fashioned charm. But recently, you know, there haven't been any really clunky Aston Martins. You know, they mostly, almost all of them look really good. They've all had really good engines in them. You know, they've you know, they've always handled well, um, you know, so, you know, they are good cars. Well, there we go. I think we've we've spoken enough about the here and now and the, the past, um, but I think we should close this podcast by looking towards the future of Aston Martin. Um, I mean, it, perhaps it looks a bit more secure now with the, the support of Lawrence Stroll and his backers, um, but it, it's still uncertain, Um particularly with everything that's going on in the wider world. Um, Even now, Andy Palmer, the CEO, talks about wanting to turn Aston Martin into the British Ferrari, um, which is as grand an ambition as it's possible to have for that sort of company. Um, Ferrari is the company that builds 10,000 cars a year, um, close to a billion in profit, heritage unlike any other company. Do you think it's a realistic ambition for Palmer? I think it so much depends on the interpretation. Um, I mean, I, I've, I've heard him quoted saying that. I don't know the context in which he said it and what exactly he meant by when he when he said it. I don't think that he means for Aston Martin to be a ten thousand um, car a year um, business um, mm. anymore. I think clearly that was once an aspiration. I suspect that isn't exactly on the radar anymore i think that what he means is a brand that is revered like ferrari is Um, and that's much less of a leap because i think that despite all its travails i think that aston martin is still a brand um that is revered um but i take your point about Lawrence stroll's money i mean goodness knows it's welcome um but you know there has to be some more from somewhere 
um, particularly with the you know the, the the timing of obviously this terrible virus couldn't have been worse for for any car manufacturer. But again, you know, it just further exposes the vulnerability of a of a manufacturer like Aston Martin, which you know has its backers, but it doesn't have that one big parent company and mm. and i admire andy palmer and his determination to keep aston martin independent um which allows him to do his own thing you know to create his own platform for the dbx and that sort of thing but you know i wonder if i'm honest with you in the future whether that is will be perceived to be a sustainable model um you know it'll be interesting to see um what you know particularly what geely does with lotus um and whether there's someone out there, I mean, people obviously, because it has a 5% holding, have always talked about uh, Daimler, um, you know, taking a big chunk of Aston Martin. You know, the executives at Mercedes that I've spoken to have always been very resistant to that uh, idea and said, no, we're just a technology partner. But, you know, much as I admire Aston Martin, uh, the board of Aston Martin's desire to keep it independent, I'm afraid there is a bit of me that if I heard that Mercedes-Benz had just taken a controlling interest, it would just breathe the most enormous sigh of relief. Because I think that's it. It's preserved. We don't have to worry about it anymore. They'll have the budget to create. I mean, really, I mean, Aston Martin is just being held back because it's never really, apart from in the Ford days, um, and there were all sorts of issues with the Ford management back then, as we've touched on earlier. They've never really had the ability just to go and show what they can do in the same way that Volvo's done it under, you know, under Geely. Uh, I don't think anybody really realised what a Volvo could be. And obviously it's a completely different context, but nevertheless, they have absolutely shone because some proprietors come along and said, okay, we trust you guys and we will continue to trust you until you, you know, mess it up, see what you can do. And I would just love someone to do that with Aston Martin and give it a proper budget because I'm convinced that unlike, you know, so many brands out there, um, the currency that still lies latent within Aston Martin is one that could create amazing cars and secure it the stable future that has never been part of its past. Um, but that's just me. Do, do you think the world <clears throat> looks slightly different now or will do three months from now, six months from now? And is it possible that this idea of bringing an SUV to market, chasing volume, um, will will look like a mistake. Is it is it possible that Aston Martin should instead downsize and reduce limit the number of cars it produces, become more exclusive? Yeah, I mean, I've seen this said before. I've seen people say you should can the DBX before uh, the DBX. I, I I don't subscribe to that. I mean, four years ago when it was still something that perhaps could have been canned because not a huge amount of money had been spent on it. Um, perhaps you could have done it but you know they have engineered an entire new platform for it they've built an entire new factory for it the car is good to go i've driven it as you know i've only driven it briefly um and a, and, and a dog-eared prototype you know on in the middle of the night in pouring rain in south wales so it wasn't exactly what you call an extensive test drive but from what i've seen you know in that market which still exists it has you know it has a role to play and you know without wishing to repeat myself you know, the Porsche Cayenne is, you know, is a great example how, of how that kind of car can actually totally transform the fortunes of a small sports car manufacturer. Now, there are obviously issues, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the lack of a hybrid really does concern me. But if they can make the DBX work, um, then I can see a, uh, an Aston Martin where you have on the one, one side, you know, the SUV um, or whatever replaces the SUVs in the future, you know, maybe the big... Um, electric saloon or whatever and then on the other side you have the for want of a better word thoroughbred aston martins the aston martins that you know that we'd want to get in and drive um and i think with one providing the credibility for the other and the other providing the money for the first then i think that's i think that's a viable way forward that is what i would do but um who knows it's going to be interesting um i hope it all works out for them because i don't think anybody wants aston martin to go under uh, i don't think that it will because you know 100 and whatever it is 107 years later you know it's still here and, and and in my mind as someone who's done a bit of research into it however bad things are for aston martin right now they've been a hell of a lot worse for them in the past okay so let's begin to wind this down then um i a few months ago i was so excited for aston martin um partly for the the cars that were coming for uh, it's motorsport activities. Um, and in, in the last few weeks, I, I think my enthusiasm, my optimism has been tempered slightly. But do you think that when we come through this, Aston Martin can still flourish and still 
grow to be this incredible brand that we're all very fond of uh, again? Very short answer. Yes, absolutely, it can. Whether it will, I'm afraid, remains to be seen. It needs very, very careful management. Um, it needs to keep its ambitions under control. Uh, it needs to be very precise with what it does. Uh, it cannot um, you know, flash the cash anymore. Um, excessive spending on on you know on vanity projects um it needs to you know pay its way and then i think because of the inherent value within the brand i think i think it can grow um and 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 thrive and flourish and you know and, and be wonderful in the future um and i just hope that it does yeah you and i both um andrew any last words on aston martin yeah um i'd like to go drive an aston martin um i'd like to go and drive anything really um any last words on aston martin um I hope they keep racing. Um, I think racing is really, really important. Not so much Formula One. I understand why they're doing that. Um, I would love to see um, the day come again um, when an Aston Martin could win Le Mans outright, and it saddens me. Again, I understand it entirely why they have withdrawn from um, the WEC hypercar category. Um, you know, Aston Martin say it's because the rules aren't clear. You know, Le Mans says it's because Aston Martin's out of money. Um, whatever, but uh, I, I'd like to see that. But you know, but more than anything else, I just want to see it. I just want to see it survive. I just want to see a clear strategy followed through, not too ambitious, but brave um, and you know, and confident. And I think if they do that, I think even now, um, definitely there's a way back for Aston Martin. You know, their cars are good. They make good cars. Um, you know, they have been undone by many factors beyond their control, one or two within their controls. But, you know, hopefully this terrible situation we're in will go away. Um, you know, obviously not many people are going to have a huge amount of money in the near future, which is why you have to be very modest with uh, your ambitions going forward. But, you know, over time, yeah, I can see a way back. Definitely. Well, there we go. Um, we'll wrap it up there. And we haven't even mentioned 007. Uh, I think we'll have to do that with it in a separate podcast, Andrew. One for you to lead, I think. I'll do my best. I may have a <laughs> word or two to say on that subject. <laughs> okay. Well, Andrew, thank you very much for your time. Um, and everybody listening, thank you so much for, for taking the time to download the podcast and listen. Um, thank you, as ever, for your, for your feedback. Uh, it means so much to us. Um, Please remember to rate the podcast where you can and subscribe wherever you get your, your podcast from. Do subscribe as well, please. It helps us. Hopefully it helps you to find the podcast as well. Um, so thank you for listening and we'll, we'll be back to talk to you again soon. Bye, everyone. Cheers. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Robert, tell the people, what's a pretendian? It's just what it sounds like, Angel. A pretend Indian. Someone who fakes being one of us? Someone who impersonates a native. We're talking about real scammers and con artists. There are pretendians teaching at universities, pretendians running governments, pretendians in Hollywood. On our new podcast, Pretendians, we'll tell you the incredible story of these jaw-dropping frauds. Who are they? Why do they do it? And how the heck do they keep getting away with it? Listen to Pretendians on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>